Welcome to Dig Deep. We are in the middle of a series called Dysfunctional, where we are looking at the broken relationships in our lives and asking, is there a way for us to go from dysfunctional to healthy, functional relationships? And so last week, we talked about the relationships in our lives where we have simply fallen out of step with another person. We acknowledge that we've all had those experiences, those missteps that throw us out of alignment, and if left unattended, we said those cracks in our relationship can grow into giant chasms that can lead to disaster and a lot of pain in our lives. And so what started as just a difference of circumstances, one of us is rejoicing while the other one is mourning something, it can lead to crippling jealousy and resentment that makes us keep our distance from that person. What maybe began as two different people with two very different set of strengths working together can become two people who can seem to only see each other's weaknesses and give up on the relationship. And what was really only just a slight miscommunication, maybe a misread email or two, snowballs into a series of miscommunications so that when we find there's an issue that we do truly deeply care about and we disagree with this other person on this issue, we have no healthy context or healthy communication history to provide a platform for us to talk about that issue. And so instead of seeking to understand each other, we write each other off as ignorant and we walk away from the relationship. And so today, we want to talk about those relationships that have gone so far that we aren't just talking about a slight misalignment anymore. We are talking about a giant chasm. Today is about those relationships where deep wounds have been inflicted, where there's a lot of pain, where someone hurt us so deeply or the chasm is so wide that it seems absolutely uncrossable. In the book, The Best of Enemies, we read the story of two individuals who were on either side of that type of chasm. This is the true story of a man named C.P. Ellis and a woman named Anne Atwater. C.P. Ellis grew up in the poor white section of Durham, North Carolina, and as a young man, joined the KKK and became a passionate member of that organization. And Anne Atwater was a single mother from the poor black part of town in Durham, North Carolina, and she quit her job to become an active member and leader in the civil rights movement. So perhaps it's not hard for you to imagine a similar chasm that you have with someone else in our modern context. I mean, especially this week in the wake of this presidential election that has been riddled with conflict and deep, deep tensions and disagreements, it may not be difficult at all for you to think of someone with whom you have such deep differences you can't even begin to understand their point of view. This isn't just a misunderstanding. You consider their vantage point to be one that is not just mysterious or confusing, it's downright wrong, and you wouldn't even know where to begin in conversation with that person. Or maybe for you, the person is someone who hurt you deeply. They hurt you in your childhood, and what they did has had ripple effects in all of your relationships ever since. Or maybe it's someone who hurt you more recently, and what they did changed the trajectory of your life somehow in a way that has caused you great pain. So what if you were forced to sit at a table with that person and have a conversation about that difference? 
about what happened, about the pain, the chasm between you. Because that's exactly what C.P. Ellis and Anne Atwater were asked to do. In 1971, the Durham City Schools began the process of court-ordered desegregation, and emotions ran high in the town on both sides of the issue, and the community was concerned about the students. They were worried about acts of violence that were being threatened, and they were afraid of what was going to take place when the desegregation went through. And so they brought together a committee to address the school system's racial policies in hopes to protect the students from violence or from the fallout that could take place. And Ellis and Atwater were both asked to serve on that committee as representatives for their respective sides of the issue, their respective viewpoints from the community. And what would you do? What would you do? I mean, this isn't just a little miscommunication. If you were asked to share a table with a member of the KKK and hear them out on their thoughts of how they think desegregation in the school should be handled, the school where both of your children will attend, what would you do? And today we want to ask the question, what if right before you were to walk through the doors, to walk through the doors to sit at the table with this person, someone were to say to you, Oh, hey, by the way, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Because that's what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. We read this verse last week in Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, no exceptions, everyone. And I appreciate that this verse says, if it is possible. Because we live in a broken world, and it may not be possible. But Paul is saying, but what if, what if it were possible? If it were possible to live at peace with this person, as far as it depends on you, what would that look like? As far as it depends on you, how could you live at peace with everyone? Everyone. So let's look at this verse again in its bigger context, starting in verse 17 of Romans 12. Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. The problem is that when we imagine this scenario, when we imagine the face of this person who has hurt us or taken something from us, who influenced our childhood in a deep way, every fiber of our being is telling us that we should repay evil for evil. We react so powerfully to the horrible things that are done to us, to those we love, to the innocent people around us. When someone hurts us or someone we love, our blood boils hot with a passion for vengeance. We want to settle the score 
in hopes that that will alleviate some of the pain that's throbbing inside of us. It's natural. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And I think he's pointing us to the truth that vengeance, as much as we want it, never ever leads to peace. It only leads to more vengeance, more pain. Here's how Lewis Smedes describes vengeance. He says, vengeance is a passion to get even. It's a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. The problem, he says, with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain, and both are stuck on that escalator as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops, and it never lets anyone off. Vengeance never ever leads to peace. It only leads to more vengeance, more pain. And it's important to note that Paul is not just telling us, hey, man, just let it go. It's not that big of a deal. Live and let live. Don't worry, be happy or some other nonsense. No, he said just a few verses earlier in verse 9 of this chapter that we should hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. I mean, he's acknowledging that natural anger that we feel toward the brokenness, toward the sin and the evil things that have been done to us, to people we love, to innocent people in the world. And he says that's good. We should hate evil. God hates evil. We hate evil. He's not saying that he wants us to get comfortable with evil or just say, well, anything goes. He says, I want you to hate it. But he's also showing us that vengeance is not the weapon that will defeat it. Vengeance is not the weapon that will defeat evil. It never really delivers. It only escalates the pain and never really gives us the peace that we're looking for. And so, if what we really want is peace, and that's a question we have to answer, if what we really want is peace, There is a weapon that actually destroys evil and brings peace. And it's not carefully calculating the debt that that person owes you and then settling the score. It's not vengeance. It's grace. Grace is the weapon that gets the job done. I mean, you can hear it in verse 20 where Paul quotes Proverbs 25, 22. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And we think, what? Paul, what are you talking about? You just said we should hate what is evil. If our enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I mean, that seems impossible. When I picture this person's face, you're telling me to do something kind, to show them love, to show them grace. I don't think I could ever. And he says, well, wait, 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 wait. He says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we think, okay, okay, well, now we're talking, Paul. That's more like it. That's what I'm talking about. And Paul's saying, wait, stop. Look at it again. Listen. If you really want to destroy your enemy once and for all, the weapon you need isn't vengeance. It's grace. 
If you generously feed your enemy, you offer them something to drink. And no, not a drink with poison in it, but a real refreshing drink of kindness. That's grace. And that is the weapon that stabs our enemy in the heart, that gets the job done, and that brings real peace in our lives. It was only 150 years ago that our nation became so divided that the chasm of beliefs and politics grew so wide in our nation that we went to war with ourselves on our own soil. And the American Civil War cost more American lives than any other war in our history. And as the war finally ended in 1865, Abraham Lincoln was president, of course, and was forced to make tough decisions that had to be made about how to punish the leaders of the Confederacy. And Lincoln was criticized. He was criticized by his fellow politicians. He was criticized by his closest advisors because they felt he was not punishing his enemies severely enough. And it was then that he responded with his famous words, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And he proceeded to set forth a merciful plan for the reconstruction and healing of our nation. Grace is not just a cute, sweet Christian word. It's not something that we just sing about on Sunday mornings. Grace is is the most powerful, strategic weapon of war against evil. If it is peace that we really want, if what we really want is not just to inflict pain on our enemies because it will feel good to us for one hot second, but if what we really want is peace, if we want to truly destroy our enemies so that they can no longer inflict us with sleepless nights and anxiety and a burning desire for vengeance that is never satisfied, that never really goes away, then the weapon we need to choose is the weapon of grace. And that's the weapon that Anne Atwater chose because she understood the power of extending grace. It was at C.P. Ellis' funeral in 2005 that the funeral director noticed Atwater sitting in the front row as they prepared to begin the funeral service. And he politely approached her and said, excuse me, ma'am, can I help you find the service that you're here to attend? And she said, oh, this is the right service. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm confused. This service is for family only. And she said, yeah, I know. And he said, I'm so sorry, to bother you, ma'am, but but can I ask, how are you related to the deceased? And she looked at him and answered simply, he was my brother. It had been one of C.P. Ellis's final requests that Anne Atwater read the eulogy at his funeral. See, back in 1971, during those talks when the committee met to try to find solutions for the students in their town, Ellis and Atwater became unlikely friends. Because despite the decisions that he had made in his life, she extended him grace. And that grace eventually blossomed into a deep, lifelong friendship. And Ellis was so impacted by her friendship and by her grace 
that he stood before a thousand of his community members and tore up his KKK membership card, renouncing his involvement with the Klan forever. And the two proceeded to work side by side, not just to help with the racial desegregation issues in the school system, but also with issues of poverty in their city that had so shaped and affected both of their lives. They abandoned together the lie of vengeance and chose grace. They chose grace, and in doing so, they destroyed their enemies by making them their closest friends, lifelong friends. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the God who's calling us to do this for each other is the God who did that exact thing for us. Romans 5.10 reminds us that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. The good news of the gospel is that God sided with us against our sin. He is a holy God and he hates evil, but he loves us so much that he gave his own life to offer us grace, to reconcile that relationship, to move us from being his enemies back to being his friends, to his beloved sons and daughters. And Jesus knew that we were going to struggle with this concept. And so he gives us a beautiful picture of a father and a son. Jesus describes a father whose son completely takes advantage of him. He leaves with half of his money. He disrespects him in the deepest way possible. And he goes off and spends all of his father's money on a bunch of really bad, disgraceful decisions. And he ends up weak and hungry and sick. And he's miserable. And he finally realizes, my whole life, I've wanted to get out of my father's house. I've wanted to just hit the party scene, do things my way. And now that I've done that, I've made these horrible decisions. I've done terrible things. It's left me with nothing. I have nothing. I am miserable. It would be better for me to be the lowest servant in my dad's house than to live like this anymore. And so he heads home. And when he comes over the hill, his dad, who's standing on the porch, scanning the horizon, sees him when he's a long way off, and he runs to him. And the son falls on his knees before his dad to beg for mercy. And his dad pulls him to his feet and throws his arms around him and says, you're home. And then he throws him the party of the year and says, this son of mine was lost and now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive again. That is the love of God. That is the grace that he shows us. And then at the end of the story, the older brother comes in and he says what the people listening would have said, what you and I would probably say. That's not fair. He says he deserves to be punished for the horrible things that he's done to you. And the father lovingly looks at his older son and says, we have to celebrate because this son of mine was lost and now he's found. And Jesus is saying, revenge isn't what I want. I want my son back. I want peace. I want restored relationship. 
And that is the good news of the gospel, that in his love, God has sided with us against our sin. Jesus came to our rescue. And even in the moments before he gave his life to pay for all the things that you and I have done wrong, he prayed to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That grace is life-changing, relationship-restoring, peace-creating love, and it's love that moves us from being enemies of God to being at peace with him. His lost sons and daughters, we've been given an opportunity to come home. And when we've experienced that grace, he's calling us to be agents of that same grace to the world around us, to everyone. There are no exceptions including our enemies. And you could say, yes, Jess, but this person isn't coming home and falling on their knees and begging for mercy. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're still out over that hill. They're still not at all remorseful about what they did to me. They think that they were in the right. They don't even know what they did to me, maybe. This person is not asking for forgiveness. And that's why Paul is reminding us, remember, as far as it depends on you, You cannot control that person, but as far as it depends on you, are you standing on the porch, scanning the horizon with hope in your heart? Are you storing up forgiveness and generosity in huge kegs, getting ready for the party to celebrate the reconciliation? As far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Elizabeth O'Connor says it this way, to bless the people who have oppressed our spirits, emotionally deprived us, or in other ways handicapped us, is the most extraordinary work any of us will ever do. If you are listening today and you are a follower of Jesus, you can and should share your story. You can and should tell people the good news of the gospel, but the single greatest work for the gospel that you will ever do is to extend grace to people that have wronged you, to extend grace to people who have hurt you. Because vengeance is a faulty weapon. It never satisfies. Only grace can truly destroy our enemies. I'm not really sure why, but for some reason Paul doesn't completely finish the verse that he quotes when he quotes from Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verse 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And the Lord will reward you. The God who offers you and I the most extravagant grace imaginable will reward you. If it is possible, and it may not be, but if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on me, we're called to live at peace with everyone, with everyone. And when you extend grace to your enemies, when you feed her, when you offer him a drink, you are wielding the only weapon that has the power to truly defeat evil, And the Lord himself will reward you.
And just like a son who lovingly imitates his father and then looks up to him for his reaction, he'll say, well done, well done. Grace is the weapon that can truly defeat our enemies. Thanks so much for being here today. There will be no new episode next week. We are taking the week off for Thanksgiving. I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, a wonderful time with family or friends. Whoever you're celebrating with, if there is someone that you're going to be seeing in the next week or so where there is pain, there is history, there is heartache, I hope that you are able to spend some time with God between now and then and ask what would it look like for you to extend grace in that relationship? What would it look like for you to wield grace as a weapon in hopes of finding peace and restoration in that relationship for the first time? So that's my prayer for you as we go into this holiday. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday, and we look forward to seeing you back here the week after Thanksgiving as we continue this series, Dysfunctional. Until then, remember to dig deep.